You are listening to episode 11 of Captain's Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 30, Diurnia System, 2372, February 2nd. After all the initial excitement, the run out to the Burleson limit settled into a comfortable rhythm. The predictable procession of watches soothed the jangled nerves, and we slipped collectively into a zen-like state. There was only the moment. We looked to the next task, the next watch, the next meal, the next shower, the next sleep. I started using the treadmills in the workout room, surprising Mr. Hill on the rowing machine one morning by joining him in the workout. He rowed, I ran. The universe unfolded. There were three minor excursions on the cruise out. We were required to exercise the crew in emergency procedures once each quarter of operation. Spacers soon took these little alarms as just part of the routine, even though they were generally offered at some odd time on a semi-random basis. The Agamemnon's crew sailed through with nary a hitch other than a few ticks of lost sleep for the off-watch. They executed lifeboat, suit, and fire drills flawlessly, with some degree of good grace. Jump was one of those evolutions on any voyage that would break the routine and rouse the crew from the pattern, in part because it actually represented a break in the pattern, in part because it marked the only tangible milestone in the journey from here to there. It represented the point where we were no longer leaving here, and we started approaching there. Mr. Paul had indeed threaded me a needle, once he finally realized he could hold the thread. We actually crossed the Burleson limit in the middle of the morning watch on February 2nd, 2372. I purposefully held off calling navigation detail until 11.30. It was one of those little things that often got in the way on larger ships that were running on somebody else's deadline. I had the luxury of delaying the jump for a convenient point in the watch cycle, where waking everybody on the ship, dragging them to duty for half a stand before going back to the mind-numbing cycle would have the least effect. It was going to be a special day for all. Mr. Wyatt had been planning a celebration dinner for days and refused to tell me what was on the menu, but assured me that going to navigation stations wouldn't affect it in the least. After we secured, there'd be a feast awaiting us on the mess deck, assuming that the jump went as predicted, of course, if it didn't go as predicted, that would be another issue. In the 20-odd stanyards I'd been making jumps, I think I could count on the fingers of my hands the number of times they'd gone wonky. Typically, it was a minor over or undershot. One memorable jump on the tinker dropped us almost on top of an outgoing tanker. To be clear, in the universal scales of the deep dark, almost on top of consisted of within 10 kilometers. We could see his running lights. It was that close. Not, we could see into the bridge windows close. He'd been out of his lane and was more embarrassed than we were. There wasn't really any way to know if there was something already in the spot we were jumping to. The probability of there being anything there was very small, but not zero. So we woke everybody and got them where we'd need them in an emergency. Promptly at 1100, Ms. Thomas, Mr. Paul, Mr. Schubert joined Mr. Hill and me on the bridge. As they trooped up the ladder, I stood from the watch standing station, logging Miss Hill on as I did so, and crossed to the captain's chair. Let's go somewhere else, Miss Thomas, shall we? She smiled in real amusement. She'd settled down in the weeks we'd been chasing each other around the watch stander merry-go-round, and my instinct seemed to be holding up. She gave every impression of being a first-rate first mate, and I thought she might make a good captain. 
if she weren't so loud. I knew she struggled to control it, but with limited success. Did you have any place in mind, Skipper? I'm thinking well of her, Miss Thomas. She turned to Mr. Paul, who was already setting up the astrogation board. What do you say, Mr. Paul? Well of her work for you this morning? Yes, Miss Thomas, I think that would be an excellent choice. Mr. Paul agrees, Captain. Shall we go? Oh, let's. We're already this far along. Log it up, Miss Thomas. She called the hands to navigation stations as a formality. Most of them were already in position, and Mr. Hill was halfway to engineering by the time the call went out. We settled down and ran the checks, locked down the ship, and generally braced up as well as we could. I'd done this so many times I'd lost count, but I always got a frisson of thrill from the possibilities of what lay just a few ticks ahead. Ship is green thrice, Captain. That was my cue to give the command to jump. There wasn't a prescribed command in the manual. It was one of the curiosities of the ages. In virtually every circumstance where command and control relied on voice commands between living people, there was a prescribed set of commands and responses. Those commands were drilled, and the responses rehearsed endlessly. Lives depended on the commands being heard, interpreted, and understood correctly as fast as human synapses allowed. Yet, in this one circumstance, there was only one suggested command word. Each captain I'd served under had their own way of doing it. Some, like Captain Jagon, just said, Go! Leon Rossett had always said, Jump! Freddy de Groot used to say, Punch it! I confess I thought more than once about what I would do when the time came. I'd spent more than a few idle moments on watch, wondering what command I'd use. I couldn't make up my mind whether to be stayed and by the book, or say something flamboyant and memorable, and I felt like a total ninny for even considering it. Right up to the point where Miss Thomas gave me my cue, and Mr. Paul looked up from astrogation. The whole ship paused, waiting for me to say something. Ready about, Mr. Paul? Hardily. He punched it, and we were somewhere else. Ms. Thomas was on the scanners, and Mr. Schubert kept us steady ahead until we could find a course. I had nothing to do, but Mr. Paul was a blur as he cranked through the process of finding where we were. Exactly. Ms. Thomas reported first. No proximity warnings, Captain? Good to know, Ms. Thomas. Thank you. She straightened from the terminal and looked out the armor glass to the space around us. Ahead was a pinhead of light in the field of dark that was slightly bigger than the other points of light and it carried a faintly yellowish hue, even to the naked eye. It looked like Welliver to me, but Mr. Paul had not yet reported. I wasn't worried. Yet. He spared a glance in my direction. Sorry, Skipper, I'm used to landing about two weeks further out. Take your time, Mr. Paul, but remember, Mr. Wyatt is holding lunch. He snorted a laugh and punched the enter key. Sorry, Skipper, I overshot by two percent. We're in Welliver? Location updates completed, course plot solution working, estimated new course in less than a tick. Thank you, Mr. Paul. Try to do better next time. I was smiling. A 2% jump error was as close to nothing as it didn't matter. Course plot's completed, Miss Thomas. Thank you, Mr. Paul. Helm, come to new heading, port 42. Yoss, down a few points, if you please, Mr. Schubert. Aye, sir, port 42 and down a few. The helm display showed the corrected course as the astrogation system updated both helm and autopilot. Make all appropriate sail, Miss Thomas. I hear they have good beer here. I'd like to find out as soon as possible. She punched up the sails but frowned at me sideways as she did it. You've never been to Welliver, Skipper. Well, not this month, Miss Thomas. She actually giggled. 
Miss Thomas giggled. That alone was almost worth the trip. It took next to no time at all for the final course and position updates to cascade through the systems, and when we secured from navigation stations, we relieved the watch as well. We were at a familiar place in the cycle, where I ate breakfast on the bridge, got to eat lunch with the crew, but I'd be back on the bridge for dinner. I stopped in the cabin on the way through officer country. I wanted to let the crew get ahead of me, so I felt less like I was leading a parade, and I usually stopped after watch for biological reasons. When I walked into the mess deck, they were all standing there, and the aromas of cooked food were amazing. The ship did a good job of isolating the smells from the galley. I chalked it up to the over-engineered scrubbers. Mr. Wyatt had done himself proud, though, with a roast of beefalo, white and sweet potatoes, a collection of green vegetables, as well as a gorgeously rich-looking tomato soup first course and three pies for dessert. I made a show of counting noses before calling loudly. Mr. Wyatt, where are the other twelve people you intend to serve with this feast? I'm going to need some help eating all of this. I'm sorry, Captain. We're all the help you'll get, but I'm sure we'll all do our best to help out with this particular evolution. There were general cheers all around. I took the ceremonial first plate, and lunch mess began. Over the days we'd been underway, I was gratified to see that my assumption of seating had been correct. People picked the places they felt they should be in, and they stayed there. The arrangement of officers was only slightly skewed from what it might have been at a wardroom table, but with no captain's chair at the head, it made sense for senior department heads to sit where we could talk face to face. Mr. Paul took the seat to my right when we dined together, and the ratings each seemed to have picked places and kept them. Over dessert, we slowed our mass ingestion and began to be more social. With most of the crew present, and with some awareness that we'd soon dock in Welliver, it seemed a propitious time to raise an issue that we'd not yet discussed. Mr. Schubert, we need to talk about the ship's co-op. None of the officers, except Mr. Wyatt, had been there when I'd made the arrangements with Mr. Schubert, so they looked on with interest to see what rabbit I was about to pull out of my cap. When would you like to do that, Captain? I looked at the assembled company. Given that it involves at least some of the crew, Mr. Schubert, I'd suggest now to be a good time. Are you familiar with the long-held and respected tradition of private trading, Mr. Schubert? I was surprised to see him shoot a glance at Mr. Hill across the table before he answered. Yes, Captain, I am. The officers were looking on curiously but made no comment. Mr. Hill kept his fork moving, but I wasn't sure he was actually moving food with it. And do you engage in this practice, Mr. Schubert? I've been known to dabble a bit, Captain, yes. Mr. Hill? He jumped as if I'd stuck a fork in him. Captain? Private trade, Mr. Hill. Ever done any? He smiled and nodded. Skipper, I think every rating in the fleet as at one point or another. Good. Then we have some current perspectives. Would it surprise anyone to learn that I used to dabble a bit, as Mr. Schubert calls it? Miss Thomas looked fascinated, and Chief Gearhart was in danger of losing her mask as she looked at me with an intensity I wasn't used to seeing. Mr. Wyatt was enjoying his second piece of pie, and the floor show. Schubert and Hill exchanged those odd glances again. It was Mr. Hill who spoke. When you were on the Lois McKendrick, Captain. Yes, Mr. Hill. I did pretty well at it, but that was some time ago and a long way away. This time the look they passed was more smug than concerned. Really, Captain? Mr. Schubert seemed almost amused. Quite well, Mr. Schubert. The profits paid for my first two staniers at the academy. The mess deck went still. It was Mr. Wyatt who asked, 
Captain? You made enough from private trade to pay for what? I smiled into my mug. My first two staniers at Port Numar. Books, board, tuition, fees, and uniforms. I was sure the officers knew approximately how much money I was talking about, but Mr. Hill and Schubert were probably only aware that it was a great deal of money. On a grand scale, it wasn't really, but enough to give them pause. Miss Thomas looked as if she wasn't sure if I were telling a tale or not. Chief Gerhardt was holding back a laugh that she could only safely let out in engineering, and Mr. Wyatt was practically slack-jawed. Oddly, the two at the end of the table were staring into each other's eyes so intently I thought they may be working on some kind of telepathic experiment. I didn't do it alone, Mr. Schubert. At the mention of his name, the eye lock broke, and they both turned to look up at the table at me. The Lois had a co-op, a cooperative selling arrangement where all the ratings on the ship could put their private trade goods on consignment, and the co-op would broker the goods and distribute the profits. Mr. Hill was following this very intently. Where did they do this brokerage, Captain, and how? The co-op rented a table in the Orbital's flea market, Mr. Hill. All the crew's trade goods would be available to the public, who usually paid top credit for some of the more exotic goods. The co-op arranged for somebody to tend the table for as long as the market was open, and Exchange took a small share of the sales to fund their operation. Ms. Thomas finally found a question that she needed answered. Why did you form a co-op? More profitable. Many of the crew were engaged in trading, but the difficulties in finding buyers on short notice often meant the goods went for only a fraction of their real worth, because the buyers knew the crew had time limits. Being beaten up and robbed was also far from a theoretical happenstance. I felt Mr. Hill stiffen, but didn't look at him. Ms. Thomas pressed for more details. So you, and I'd bet my next sandwich that it was you, Skipper, you organized the crew to form this co-op and convinced the ship to go along? <laughs> no bet, Ms. Thomas, but I did have help. My friend was mugged and lost his trade. I just found a different way to do it where a crew didn't run the risk of being mugged, and together we convinced enough people to go along with us that it just took off. Once people saw how well we were doing, we had plenty of participants. Mr. Wyatt had recovered by then. Skipper, you did not make enough money doing private trades to pay for two standards at the academy. You must have done something else. I grinned and shrugged. Okay, that's true. There was a general air of relief around the table as if they really didn't believe I'd done it and were just waiting for the truth to come out. The private trading gave my buddy and I enough capital to begin buying and selling cargoes. That was really where the majority of the money came from. Mr. Wyatt got the point immediately. It was his field after all. Buying and selling cargoes, Captain. As in, containers of goods? I smiled a little. It was rather insane when viewed in hindsight, but it seemed logical at the time. Yes, exactly, Mr. Wyatt. The Lois was a Manchester-built freighter that carried 12-meter canisters. Mr. Schubert had lost the thread by then and struggled to regain it. How much cargo can you put in only 12 meters, Captain? Mr. Wyatt turned to him with the answer. Six hundred metric tons, Mr. Schubert. Mr. Schubert frowned. That's a lot of cargo, sir. We had to buy low-value cargoes at first. It takes a lot of money to fill a 12-meter container. The group took a collective breath and then resumed eating. 
Chief Gearhart kept giving me furtive little glances from under her eyebrows, and Ms. Thomas muttered, No wonder they sent you to the academy. Mr. Hill laughed and almost choked on his pie, trying to hold it back. So, Mr. Schubert, I'd like you to take charge of starting the ship's co-op. Organize it. See how it might work. We don't have the crew that the Lois had, but there must be a way we can make it work. Mr. Schubert and Hill exchanged glances once more before Mr. Schubert turned back to me. Aye, aye, sir. Do you have any trade goods aboard with which you might prime the pump to get started in Welliver, Mr. Schubert? He gave a little sideways shrug. I may have a few odds and ends, Skipper. Mr. Hill, are you in? Sounds intriguing, Captain. Count me in. Okay, then I will leave it in your hands, gentlemen. Please ask if you have any questions. The two ratings answered as one. Aye, Captain. Lunch ended pretty quickly after that. Just as well, really. It was getting on to 1300, and after that feast, I needed a nap. We all chipped in to help clear away the extra mess caused by the extra food, and with all of us helping, the galley was shipshape again in no time. As I drifted off to sleep, I kept remembering those glances and wondering what the boys were up to. Chapter 31, Welliver Sector, 2372, February 16th. We were still a little more than a week out of Welliver when I found out why my two young gentlemen were so skittish about the subject of personal trade. I'd finally caught up on the paperwork on the trailing end of an otherwise unremarkable midwatch. Welliver was growing daily ahead of me, and I knew I'd need to start picking cans soon. On a whim, I pulled up the available cargo list for Welliver. It was blank. Mr. Hill, have you any idea why the cargo availability list for Welliver is blank? Bless his heart, he'd grown used to long stands of silence, punctuated by odd questions from me. He looked over from the helm and shrugged. It's always blank until Mr. Wyatt gets the updates from the inner beacon skipper. Well, that'll be only a day or so before we dock. Yes, I was stating the obvious. He shrugged again. Not much we can do until then anyway, is there, skipper? My disbelief must have shown on my face. Captain? Mr. Hill, you do realize that we don't actually need to be docked in order to buy and sell, correct? Well, of course, Captain, but I don't get it. We don't get up-to-date market data until we're a lot closer in. I sat there for a moment as the implication of what he was saying washed through my incredulous mind. I couldn't even respond for a full tick. Mr. Hill, after we get the breakfast mess secured, you and I and Mr. Wyatt need to have a serious talk about making money. We're missing something, aren't we, Sar? I'd guess about 10 to 20 percent on profit. He goggled. I debated running the update myself, but the chronometer was clicking past 0515 and a stand or two wouldn't matter. Running Mr. Wyatt through the whole process from the beginning would expedite understanding. After breakfast, Mr. Hill, we'll talk. Aye, aye, Skipper. He smiled and settled back to his watch. Thinking of cargo reminded me of Schubert and the co-op. The gang of three hadn't come up with a name yet, and they were still debating on what the appropriate cuts should be. Mr. Schubert's wit and good humor were standing him in good stead as he chivied the other two into position. I'd overheard them discussing it on more than one occasion, and realized that the lack of personnel was going to make things more difficult than I first expected. Still, if they could cover even half a day on the tables, I was relatively certain they'd do better than whatever they'd been able to scrape together on their own. That train of thought pulled into Puka Station, 
and I pulled up the Agamemnon's record on my screen. I'd almost forgotten about the extra mass, but with the possibilities looming in the near future, I wanted to find out if the stuff were still aboard, or if it were just an accounting error. The cover record was as I remembered, but when I clicked on the transaction details, I began to get an idea of why my two young colleagues were so uneasy about the captain becoming interested in their private trades. The most recent date corresponded to our next-to-last day in Diurnia. Mr. Schubert had logged a dozen kilos out of the Agamemnon's account. Scrolling back through the transaction details, I saw postings in and out of that account by all three of my brow watchstanders. Did they get it all, Mr. Hill? Captain? The trade goods. Did they get it all when they rolled you in Diurnia? He stiffened slightly, caught himself doing it, and tried to relax. I'm not sure I understand what you mean, Captain. Good man. Don't admit to anything until you know what you're accused of. I had to smile and give him credit for that. I'm looking at the Agamemnon's mass allotment transactions, Mr. Hill. Yes, Captain? It shows that Mr. Schubert signed a dozen kilos of mass out at a time which might reasonably coincide with your leaving the ship. There is no corresponding record showing that mass, or any other, returning before we got underway. What I do happen to recall is a rather worse-for-wear crewman being returned to me sometime the next morning, Mr. Hill. He sighed, but kept his attention on the helm. Yes, Captain, they got it all. Is all this stuff yours, Mr. Hill? He shook his head without looking at me. No, Skipper, all three of us have some of it. I may have the most, but we don't really keep track. Where do you store it, Mr. Hill? Well, here and there, Captain. Bottoms of lockers, under the mattresses. Anything dangerous to the ship? Empty data cubes, some electronics parts, the odd bit of this and that. Nothing really too far out there. Entertainment cubes? Consumables? Entertainment, yes, Captain. Drugs? Stuff like that? No. Chooch, Mr. Schubert. Bought a few cases of wine once, and they broke in the bottom of his locker. We've tried to keep with durables since then. Alcoholic beverages are tricky to do well. You have to know what you're doing, Mr. Hill. He glanced at me out of the corner of his eye, but I was staring at the transaction record on the screen. The lads had been very industrious if the number of transactions were any indication. After a few ticks, I sat back and looked at the side of his head. How's this worked out for you, Mr. Hill? Not great, Skipper. Defeat hung heavy in his voice. You nailed it at the table the other day. High risk, low yield. I made a tisking sound in my teeth. Been there, Mr. Hill. I had a half-baked idea that wasn't quite ready to come out of the oven. Let me ponder this a bit, Mr. Hill. Thank you for being forthcoming. Would you pass to your trading partners that the jig is up and that there'll be a ruling soon? He slumped. Of course, Skipper. Thank you, Mr. Hill. The chronometer was ticking toward the end of the watch, and I turned to making sure my logs were up to date while I pondered. I couldn't just let them add to the ship's mass without some kind of oversight. On the other hand, the amount of mass they had accrued was lost in measurement error on the scale of things we worked in. I was also a little leery about letting them deal in just anything. Having the co-op deal at the table would obviate some of that, limiting trade goods to those things which would be sold by light of day and not in some out-of-the-way corner of the orbital would relieve most of my worries. Still, there was a better solution lurking in my hindbrain, 
I just needed to pretend I wasn't looking for it so it would come out. Luckily, Ms. Thomas and Mr. Schubert came onto the bridge about then, and I was completely distracted from the issue by the changeover in the watch. While Ms. Thomas was relieving me, Mrs. Hill and Schubert had their heads together over at the helm. I saw Schubert flinch once and stop himself from looking at me. He leaned in to say something, and Mr. Hill shrugged. Formality served, I headed to the cabin for a quick splash of the face, and then on to breakfast. Mr. Wyatt was turning into an extraordinarily good omelet maker, and I was feeling the need for one of his sausage and mushroom masterpieces. As we cleaned up from breakfast mess, I broached the subject with Mr. Wyatt. I tried to access the available cargo listing, Mr. Wyatt. It's blank, and Mr. Hill informs me that you don't pick up the outer marker data. Is there a reason for that? Well, it's out of date, Captain. It just never seemed like it was worthwhile before. Why is that, Mr. Wyatt? In part because of the time involved, Captain. It's five weeks. He stopped wiping down the work table, and his head snapped around as comprehension dawned. It used to be five weeks, Mr. Wyatt. Still, we're almost two weeks out, Captain. There's something I'm missing, isn't there? Yes, Mr. Wyatt, there is. I was grinning, and he caught my excitement. If you'd ask Mr. Paul to run the updates with whatever best data he can find, I'll show you what it is. He pulled out his tablet and ran a few commands. Three ticks, Captain. He's running up to systems now. I drew a mug from the urn and snagged the keyboard from its dock before settling on a bench where I could see the repeater screen and have room to work. I brought up the cargo lists and waited. As good as his word, in just a few ticks the list refreshed and a long list of cargo availabilities scrolled down the screen. Mr. Wyatt walked over to the screen so he could point to it to demonstrate his issues. The dates on these postings are quite old, Captain. Many of them are days old. Yes, Mr. Wyatt, but how long do cargo stay on the list when we're in port? He looked startled. Well, yes, several days if they're not bid out. I highlighted a field at the top of the screen. That's the number you want to watch, Mr. Wyatt. Mr. Hill brought his coffee and settled on the bench beside me so he could watch as well. Time of last update, Skipper. That's the date and time this list was captured and spun out to the beacons. He looked at it but objected. It's still a day out of date. I flicked a few keys and the date display changed. Mr. Wyatt's eyes almost bugged out of his head and he glanced at the chrono on the bulkhead. What happened, Captain? I accounted for the difference between Welliver Standard and ship local time. It's only three stands delayed? It varies, but it's seldom more than five. Mr. Hill was taking it all in and looked at me for permission to speak. Please jump in, Mr. Hill. You're part of our little troika. How does this help us, Skipper? Sometimes you lose a cargo because you're a tick late. These numbers are three stands. True but they do give you a feel of how the market flows. Some ports, you can't keep up with the flow. Some ports, priority cargoes wait for contracts for days. Getting a feel for how it flows is part of it. But even out here, if you see a good cargo, grab for it. Maybe you'll miss, but maybe you'll hit. By starting early, it takes the time you have available to search from a day or two to a week or two. You only need to be successful once on a really fat cargo, and there's no penalty for missing one that the time delay causes you to miss. We stared at the list. I hit a few keys to winnow out all but the 15 metric kiloton cans. The remaining list was shorter, but still impressive. I sorted by priority, and a three-can string went to the head of the list. Mr. Hill spotted the value on it first. Mr. Wyatt, does that number mean what I think it does? If you're looking at the delivery bonus, 
Yes, Mr. Hill, it does. I had to admit, it was impressive. The bonus alone on that set of cans was more than we'd likely clear on the three that we had. Several other cargoes were on the list, but none of them had that value on them. Why is it so high, Sars? Look at the destination and cutoff date, Mr. Hill. The string was going to jet, and they were asking for delivery in seven weeks. I sighed. We'd have to be almost docked and ready to pull out immediately to bid on that one, Mr. Hill. He nodded slowly, lost in thought. I see that, Captain. Mr. Wyatt pointed out the other limitation. We'd also have to jump twice, Skipper. Yes, we would, Mr. Wyatt. The chrono ticked over to ten hundred, and I realized that I had better hit the rack for a snooze. Mr. Hill and I had been up all night on the midwatch, and we'd be back on the bridge at noon. Watch and two stands, Mr. Hill. He roused himself from his reverie. Yes, Captain, thanks for the reminder. We bust our empties and headed out of the mess deck, he for crew berthing and I for the cabin. As I stretched out on my bunk, that string of cans weighed on me. We weren't close enough to bid on it, but what if we were? Would I need to end the bet so the ship could profit? Was that wise? In the short term, perhaps, but things were beginning to shape up nicely, and how would my lack of faith in them be perceived, or would it matter? And what about Jen? I told her I'd be home in mid-April. That would push up my arrival until May or June. The thoughts were not easy ones, and they chased themselves around in my head, even while I slept, apparently, because when I awoke I felt more tired than when I'd laid down. Fortunately, the set of cans in question was beyond our capacity to deliver. We wouldn't make it to Welliver in time to take them to Jet. Thanks for listening to Captain's Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. Music is The Mason's Apron and is used with permission of the artist J.F. Archer. Find this and other works by J.F. Archer at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 U.S. License. For more information on the Golden Age, visit www.solarclipper.com.